you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 27 as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at a long passage this morning. Uh, back in January, uh, Jeremy was complaining that I gave him such a long passage to preach from, and so I didn't want him to, to feel alone. So uh, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. It's about 45 or 46 verses long. We're not going to... Uh, to a study all the way through it, but we are going to read all the way through it one time, and, and then we're going to just pick out a couple little bits and pieces. But as I was studying for this uh, for the sermon, which uh, this is the family that put the fun back in dysfunctional, and you're going to see in a moment that this is a, an interesting mom and dad and sons as they interact with one another. Uh, but as I was as I was studying for the sermon, I thought back to the early days of Green Tree before I even got here, and how the the congregation took turns preaching to one another. And there was a sermon that was preached. It was along the lines of just because you're a Christian doesn't mean, you know, you can't be kind of a jerk to other people. And uh, I, I've heard about that sermon. I wasn't here when it was preached. But uh, the more I listen to people talk about it, the more that kind of resonated with me. It's true. You know, I can profess to be a disciple of Jesus and be extraordinarily rude to you. <laughs> I can claim to be a follower of Christ and uh, not trust in God in the way I interact with you and you with me, one of the things that, that Jeff said in the call to worship this morning, if you if you were here and you heard and you were listening, so you know Christians can kind of ebb and flow. We have moments where we get it, where we're trusting God, where we're following Him, and there are other moments where we stumble and we and we fall short. Part of the problem is that I think at times we think once we've hit salvation, we're kind of good to go, and, and we make the assumption, maybe not purposely in our minds, maybe not uh, we're not even necessarily fully aware that we deal with it this way, but we think. You know, salvation really is the sum and substance of my relationship with God. But I think if, if we stop there, we can leave ourselves in a very dangerous place. Probably every person in this room has met somebody who called themselves a disciple of Jesus and treated you very poorly. Or perhaps you've had the experience where you've come away from a relationship and feeling ashamed because you didn't represent Christ well. Uh, my wife's stepfather, Cindy's stepfather, graduated from seminary and was an abusive person. Both those two things were true. He was steeped in theology. He claimed to know God, and he abused the people around him. And lest we are too quick to say, well, that's, that's not us. That's not me. I'm taking it a step further. I'm really, I'm really walking in discipleship every day. I think a good look at this passage will help us see some of the potential pitfalls. It will perhaps warn us just a little bit or help us understand that our salvation actually leads to discipleship. And discipleship is really conforming to the image of Christ. It really means that there's a change in the inside of my life that affects my outward behavior, that we're not just about behavioral adjustment. We're not just trying to get people to act the right way, so to speak, but we're hopeful and we're prayerful and we know that Scripture promises that God, when he, when he works his way into our lives, is going to make that kind of change. Now, the way we're going to look at it this morning, in Genesis 27, you're not going to see people who are acting on faith. You're actually going to see the opposite of that. You're going to see people who are acting void of faith. It doesn't mean they don't believe God. It doesn't mean that they haven't put their trust in it. But at this particular moment, in this particular situation, it's as if their faith is meaningless. We're going to look at this not because we want to pick on them or we want to say, gee, I'm glad I'm not like that but rather to see ourselves in the story and to look for, again, perhaps some of the stumbling blocks that could be in our path as we seek to be disciples of Jesus. As I said, this is a long passage. I toyed with not reading this to you, but as I, as I talked to a couple people earlier in the week, they said, no, read it all the way through. It won't make sense if you don't. 
So it's going to take us about four and a half minutes. I timed. It's going to take about four. Don't, those of you guys that have stopwatches, don't start your stopwatches. But it's going to take us a few minutes. But listen to this account in the life of Isaac and Rebekah and their two sons, their twin sons, Jacob and Esau. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dimmed so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such that I love, and bring to me, so that I may eat, and that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebecca was the soul may bless you. Listening, she's kind of standing outside the tent, paying attention to this conversation. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, to hunt game and to bring to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring to me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So he went and he took them and he brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in uh, the house and put them on Jacob, her youngest son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put on delicious, she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son, Jacob. So he went into his father. And he said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat my game that you, uh, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Isaac or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. And he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and the plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, 
Let my father arise and eat his son's game that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? The word Jacob literally means he cheats or he's a cheater. Do not rightly name Jacob, for he has cheated me of these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she went and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise and flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you both in one day? This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we acknowledge this morning that at times there is a disconnect between what we confess to believe and how we live our lives. Lord, as we, use, uh, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we pray that you would allow us to use it as a lens, not into the lives so much of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, but into our own hearts, into our own minds. Father, we pray that you would speak your truth to us this morning. We're gathered here as people claiming to be the people of God but knowing at times how far short we fall of that claim. Father, there are times when people see you because of us, and there are other times when they maybe see you in spite of us. So, Lord, this word of correction perhaps is short we fall of that claim. They maybe see you in spite of us. So, Lord, this word of correction perhaps is going to be important for each of us. Lord, it, This is your holy word. It is what we need to hear, whether we realize it or not. It's not my word. It's not man's philosophy that it's important. It is only your eternal word that stands forever. So, Lord Jesus, Jesus, we pray that you would come, that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to to look at these four individuals, and I said we're not going to go all the way back through 
the passage uh, and, and read any amount of it again. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make one observation about Isaac, one about Rebekah, one about Jacob, and one about Esau. And we'll put some verses uh, on the screen that speak to uh, that, that speak about those observations. Really, they're they're the uh, they're the foundation of, of the observations that I've made. Because again, what I'm hoping that we'll see in Scripture this morning is some potential. Uh, pitfalls in our own lives are areas where we may be living today or, or uh, temptations that we may be facing that are moving us uh, away from God instead of more conforming uh, to the image of Christ. You might, uh, you might end up seeing yourself at some place in particular in this passage. I want to start with Isaac, and I want you to notice about Isaac that I believe this passage tells us that he has a stubborn heart. Um, to kind of squish down the first four verses, this is the fundamental message Isaac says to Esau, his older son, my son, take your bow and go out into the field and hunt game for me. Prepare, prepare for me delicious food so that I may eat and bless you. Now you say, what on earth does that have to do with a stubborn heart? Well, if you go back to before these two boys were born, if you go back to chapter 25 and you look at verse 23, you'll find out that Rebecca has asked God a question. Why are these two struggling so mightily within my womb? And God says very clearly, the older son is going to serve the younger one. In other words, the younger one is the one that's going to be blessed. He's going to become the head of the clan. He's going to be the one through which my promise comes. On the day that they're born, we see this as Esau comes out of the womb first, but there's Jacob clutching onto his heel as if to climb over him or past him in order to take the lead. God has declared from, from the time of the pregnancy of these boys the order in which things are going to be. Isaac knew this. This was not new information. This was not something that was going to surprise him. And yet he doesn't act on what God has said. When this verse starts out saying when he's an old man, his eyes were dim, he called his son. The next word of said he called Jacob because he knew that God was going to bless their family through Jacob. But he doesn't do that. He stubbornly refuses to submit to the will of God by offering to Esau the blessing that God has already said belongs to Jacob. Now we know, again, from chapter 25, uh, right when the, when the boys are growing up, verse 28, that Esau, or excuse me, that Isaac dotes on Esau. He is his favorite son. And now fast forward to this event some 40 plus years later, and Jake, or Isaac is on his deathbed, and he's still refusing to accept God's plan. He's demonstrating a stubborn, stubborn heart. And you might look at that and go, well, what's wrong with that guy? How could anybody know God's will and be that stubborn? How could anybody really refuse to obey God in something that's so obvious and so clear? And I would be tempted to think that same thought unless I, except for the fact that I can look at my own life and I can see that same kind of stubbornness. I had a birthday a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Katie uh, organized my birthday card this year, which wasn't a, a Hallmark card or wasn't a card from, from Target or from Walgreens. But she went to her brothers, and she said that they, she asked each of them the same question, what have you learned from Dad? What's Dad taught you? And she's going to put it in a list, and it's going to be my birthday card. So they give this to me. We go out to dinner for my birthday. I get this thing, and I open it up, and uh, she says, this is all the stuff that you've taught us. She says, I made the boys send me a list that they have learned from you so I could give it to you as a birthday card. And so these are just some of the things that, that they said. Jordan said, you know, he's taught me the importance of selflessness and giving, uh, how uh, how, how to be kind, how to be spontaneous. He also mentions this, how to drive and weave through traffic. I don't really, I don't really think that was me. But, um, you know, Nate says, Dad taught me to take responsibility for my choices and actions. Most people won't. 
He asked me to, told me to think for myself and make my own decisions. Most people don't make their own decisions. They even weave through traffic. I don't really, I don't really, responsibility for my choices and actions. Most people won't. He asked me to, told me to think for myself and make my own decisions. Most people don't make their own decisions. Uh, Nate also learned that if you have a bad round of golf, Chinese food goes a long way in making you feel better. So there's some good observations there. And then Katie has some wonderful observations too. You know, I can do anything if I put my mind to it. You know, the Lord is greatly pleased with steps of faith, no matter how small. So I'm reading through this list, and this is a great list. But then on this second page, number six says this, and I want you to listen carefully. This is one of the things that I've taught my children, that I've passed on to my children. Stick to whatever you say first, even if you're wrong. Stick to whatever you say first, even if you're wrong. Isn't that a wonderful thing to teach a child? Son, daughter, the most important thing is that you learn never to admit you're wrong, to always stick to your guns even when you know you're not right. I have a feeling that Isaac's stubborn heart has come back to life in my body, and I see myself in this man. I'm not saying that he doesn't believe God. I think he does. Isaac was the one that was laid on the altar, and and Abraham, his father, raised his knife. Isaac could have fought his father. He didn't. He trusted in the Lord. Isaac has shown time and time again he's going to trust God. But in this particular moment, there's a spiritual blindness in Isaac's life, and he's missing what's going on. Now, God's going to do his work. The the, the plan of redemption is not going to fail, friends, because Isaac has, has, has a misconception of what he ought to be doing. But Isaac is going to miss the opportunity to see God's hand at work and to be part of that. And Isaac, in this decision, even at the end of his life, to bless Esau instead of Jacob creates chaos in his family. He isn't leading with a submitting spirit to the Lord's direction. He's making a mess. The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, where am I refusing to submit to God? Where do I see the stubborn heart of Isaac in my own life? Understanding that my stubbornness can actually lead to harming other people. I haven't done my kids any favors, friends, by teaching them that. I hope they forget it very quickly. But I've passed on to them some of my sin nature. That stubborn heart can do harm to others. So Isaac's a man of a stubborn heart, but he's married to a woman who has a uh, conniving spirit. Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau. It doesn't say she was invited in to the conversation. It doesn't say she was supposed to be there. In fact, the way the the sentence is actually worded makes it sound like she was eavesdropping. She was someplace where she wasn't supposed to be. So when Esau went to the field, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, and you know the instructions that she gives him in order to, uh, in order to, to rig the deal. Now, I'll give Rebecca this much. Isaac hasn't given her any reason to trust that he's trusting God. Isaac hasn't shown her by demonstration in the way he lives that he's trusting God in this particular moment, in this particular set of circumstances. But she's still responsible for her reaction. The next verse doesn't say that Rebecca went and, and, and laid before the Lord and prostrated herself and prayed, God, you promised that Jacob would be first. Now, you need to fix Isaac's heart because he's going in a different direction. And Lord, I'm not going to do anything about it. It's not my place. That's not my role. You, Lord, take care of this because you're the one that makes the promise. That's not what you hear. Rebecca says, okay, God's made a promise, but now I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to make sure I fix this. I'm going to make sure that God gets it right. I have to remember that, that Rebecca dotes on Jacob. It's not what you hear. Rebecca says, okay, I'm going to make sure I fix this. I'm going to make sure that God gets it right. I have to remember that, that 
Rebecca dotes on Jacob as much as, as much as Isaac had doted on Esau. And now it works its way out in a manipulation and a deception for her desired ends. God promised, therefore, I'm going to make sure this happens. I've said this before. I get really nervous when people say to me, God said to me. If the next thing out of their mouth isn't to quote a scripture verse, I tend to get a little bit gun shy because I know how quickly I can justify my actions and my sin based on what, what God wants for my life. And I can be an abject rebellion against God and say, oh, I'm sure that this is the path that God wants me to walk down. I bet if you asked Rebecca, she would say, I'm just making sure that what God said would happen would happen. But she does through, does so by manipulating. She does so through dishonesty. She does so through deceit. And here's the question. When is dishonesty to get your way the right response? When can you ever paint a picture that says, when I don't tell the truth, that ends up being a good thing? I'm not talking about, you know, saving, you know, the, hiding some Jewish folks from the Nazis. And when the Nazis come saying, no, they're not here. I'm not talking about life and death. I'm not talking about, about moral right and wrong and that kind of scenario. I'm talking about the everyday living of life. When it's convenient for me to give a little twist of the truth in order for me to look better, then I'm practicing manipulation and I'm not following Christ. I can give it to you in a very simple terms. I come home for dinner. Cindy calls late in the afternoon. What time are you going to be home? I'll be home at 6. I show up at 6.30. Friends, I live less than a mile between, from my office to my house. I, I, the main intersection I have to cross is, Guy, is, a, is, is a Kirkwood Road next, uh, next to Spencer's right there. There's a traffic light, okay? The biggest problem, the biggest headache in my uh, traveling between office and work is if I get down to Guy Road and a train's just gone by and the, and the gates come up and now the traffic has to go by. By the wildest stretch of the imagination, the longest it could take me to possibly get from my office to my house is about seven and a half minutes. So I come home at 6.30 instead of 6. And he says, where have you been? Now, if faith is operating in my life, I'm not worried about my reputation at that point. I'm worried about being an honest man. I'm worried about glorifying Christ. I'm worried right now, quite frankly, about repentance because I've wronged my wife. I've said my time is more important than your time. I didn't, I, I didn't, you know, really think that that was all that big of a deal. So I did what was best for me. That's what should be on my lips. But what, so I've got, I'm ready with that speech, right? And what comes out of my mouth is, oh, I had to counsel somebody just a little bit longer, honey. You know, I put it in spiritual terms. Oh, a train came and I got stuck. And I just twisted a little bit. It's not a flat out bold-faced lie, but I manipulate the truth and I don't practice any faith at all. You say, now you're getting a little bit nitpicky, aren't you, Tom? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because when we let those small little things into our lives, when we refuse to have the practical application of the gospel work its way into our conniving hearts, we run a dangerous risk of harming ourselves spiritually and harming others. We have a stubborn heart. We have a conniving spirit. And we also have in uh, Jacob, I'm going to call uh, a willing accomplice. Remember Jacob's name. Jacob's name is he cheats. So uh, Rebecca calls him in and she says, obey my voice, go and bring these things to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And then he goes into his dad and he says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. Now I say that Jacob is a, is a willing accomplice because his name is he cheats. And this seems to indicate that he'll gladly go along with mom's plan. You know, you don't hear him say to his mom, mom, this is a bad idea. This is dishonest. 
We'll be lying to dad. We, we shouldn't lie to dad. He's worried not about the morality of the scheme, but what's he worried about? He says, mom, before we go through this, what happens if I get caught? What happens if dad realizes it's me? Then I get a curse instead of a blessing. Do you, do you hear that message? It isn't, mom, you've taught me right from wrong, and this is wrong. You don't hear any morality here. You see, mom, I want to make sure that I'm not going to get in trouble. There's no repentance here. There's just a worry about being found out, and he gladly partners with this conspiracy. He ignores the harmful ramifications that it's going to cause his family. In other words, it's really right up his alley. And so once his mom assures him that he won't get caught, he jumps right in with both feet. He helps execute the plan, and he goes in and he looks his father in the eye, and he just lies to him, deceives him, takes advantage of his age and his poor eyesight. And it's almost as if this were a role that Jacob was created to play. I do believe that there are sin patterns in people's lives. I believe there are sin patterns in my own lives. Some of you may be sitting here this morning and say, you know what, I'm not really prone to lying like this. I'm not prone to deceit. And that might very well be true. But you know what, maybe since you've been a little kid, you've had a really bad temper. And you've hurt people with the words that you've used. And you haven't stopped to think about the damage you've caused. You just run over people. might not be dishonesty, but it's still a sin pattern. You might say, you know, I, 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 don't have that kind of sin, I don't have that kind of temptation in my life, but maybe since you were younger, you've had a temptation towards sexual immorality, and you've had a bent in that direction. Maybe it's been a struggle with some kind of substance. Maybe you've had a bent towards alcohol, or you've had a bent, bent towards drug use of some kind. It doesn't necessarily have to be dishonesty, but friends, we need to see that, that we're wired in a certain way, and because of the fall, because of sin, because of our brokenness, because of our flawed character, we may not be as bad as we possibly could be, but there's something radically wrong with us, and it tends to work itself out. If you look at your life, I promise you this, because I, I know from experience, if you look at your life, you will see repetitive patterns in your life, and this is a repetitive pattern in Jacob's life, and it's going to come up. Again, it's going to get worse before it gets better. So I don't want you to look at, at this passage and say, well, what a rotten guy Jacob was because he lied. I think we need to look at this and say, what kind of sin pattern uh, am I, to which am I most prone? Where, what directions do I naturally head? And where's, where's my proclivity and what might possibly be behind this? I mentioned the, the, the birthday letter that Katie gave to me. Uh, Katie is, is the one that always kind of gets on me about what I eat. And she's always kind of fussing me about doing, doing a little bit of exercise and, and eating a little bit better. But you know what? Lately, she's been saying, you know what, Dad? There's something spiritual behind your food. You know, why is it that when you get in a tight spot or, or you're frustrated, you've had a hard day, that a Twinkie looks better than prayer time? <laughs> what, what, what do you think's going on there, Dad? You know what? That's a fair question. That's a legitimate question. That's a question with which, as a disciple of Jesus, I need to wrestle. And I need to see God do his work in my heart to change my heart if there's idolatry there. Where are the sin patterns in your life? Jacob's a willing accomplice. Where, where am I a willing accomplice? Where are you a willing accomplice? And our, our, last, uh, our last character in this particular passage is Esau. And I'm calling Esau a vindictive adversary. Esau hated Jacob and said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. In other words, I know dad's going to die and we've got to go to the funeral home and dress up and go to the funeral and bury him and everybody's got to behave. But after that, <laughs> then I will kill my brother. And so Rebecca finds out and she says to Jacob, your brother comforts himself. He makes himself feel better about his situation by planning how he's going to kill you. Esau sees himself as a victim here. 
with no culpability for the situation that he has actually helped create. Do you hear what he said to his dad? This is the second time that no good so-and-so got the better of me. No, it's not. You remember how we looked at this a few weeks ago, if you weren't here, when, when uh, Jacob offers a pot of stew for the birthright, for the inheritance, like offering somebody a $5 cup of soup for a $10 million inheritance. Esau doesn't walk away from that. Esau takes the, he takes the trade. It's his choice. And that passage ends by saying Esau despised his birthright. Esau is not a victim here, friends, but he's playing the part. He thinks it's everybody else's fault but his. And his reaction gives us insight into his personality. He's decided that he's going to console himself by figuring out how he's going to kill his brother. He's become judge, jury, and executioner all wrapped up into one. I'm right, Jacob's wrong, and I'm going to make sure that this situation gets rectified. And the end result of Esau's vindictive adversarial role is that this family is torn apart. Jacob does flee. We didn't read that part. Jacob does run off to Laban, to his uncle's house. He ends up saying, you know how long he ends up at Laban's house? How long it is before he sees his mother and his brother again? Over 20 years because he was afraid for his life because he knew that his brother wanted to kill him. Again, you could look at Esau and say, what an awful, what a terrible reaction. I would never want to, I, I would never want to do that. I would never want to kill somebody for that. No, but where are you taking matters into your own hands as if you were the innocent party? Where do you refuse to see your sin? I'm not talking about places where you're really, there, there's real literal harm. I'm not, you know, Cindy's situation I talked about earlier where, where a stepfather abuses a person. I'm not talking about a situation like that. But in the day-to-day living out in our marriages and in the workplace and our friendships, there are plenty of places where I need to step up and take responsibility and say, I'm not a victim here. I'm part of the problem. But I'm unwilling to see the sin in my own heart. Esau becomes vindictive because he thinks he's innocent when actually he's every bit as big of the problem as everybody else in this story. Notice who's missing from this account. Identify who's never consulted and observe who is ignored. You never hear God mentioned except in, when, when it suits Jacob to lie. And, he's, and uh, Isaac said, how'd you get back so fast? He said, oh, I, the Lord your God gave me success. Nobody ever turns to the Lord in this passage. Everybody's trying to figure it out for themselves. And I think the same can be true of us. These were people of the promise. God had spoken directly with both parents. They knew the plan of redemption was flowing through them. And this is a woeful response. But it's the same response I can have when I ignore faith. When I think I just stop with salvation, as long as as God's going to save me, that's enough for me. I'll take Jesus as Savior, but I don't really want Him as Lord. Instead of understanding that knowing Christ is my Savior is the first step on the journey, and growing in Christ means a change of heart. It means I see myself for who I am, and I see how Christ not only wants to redeem me, but He wants to put my feet on a solid path. He wants to change my life so the impact I have with my family, with my wife, with my kids, with you guys, with others is something that glorify God and actually nourishes my soul instead of tearing it down. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. We'll wrap up with this. Paul says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to see in this verse, Christ living in Paul by faith. 